Hey, would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Esther? Uh, This morning marks week three of our nine-week series through this book, through our series entitled Faith Among the Faithless. I love that series title. It is such a fitting description of the story of Esther, a story that never once makes any mention of God's name, a story that contains no explicit mention of of prayer, really no mention of any overtly religious activity at all. It's a a story in which the Jews, the people of God, are nearly invisible against the backdrop of the pagan Persian culture surrounding them. If we read the book of Esther rightly, there's a lot more faithlessness than faith displayed in God's people. Uh, If you've not been with us, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of context. If you have, remember with me the events that led up to the book of Esther, okay? So around 587 BC, Jerusalem had been conquered by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, and as a result, droves of Jews were forced away from their home in Israel. They were deported to Babylon, where they were forced to live and work and to serve pagan gods. This was all prophesied and predicted by the prophet Isaiah in the book of Isaiah. It's during this time in Babylon when we read the tremendous faith stories of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, men who did not conform to the surrounding pagan culture, but they they in fact resisted to the point of being sentenced to death. It's around this time that the book of Jeremiah was written, encouraging these Jewish captives while they were captive and in exile in Babylon. They were instructed to neither isolate nor assimilate. Pastor Ronnie helped us to, to see that last week. The Jews were called to live in Babylon, but they were not called to be of Babylon. And then in 539 BC, Babylon was conquered by the Persian king Cyrus the Great, and he did something that was absolutely unprecedented for ancient kings. It was something that was also predicted by the prophet Isaiah. Cyrus the Great released the Jewish people from their captivity. He allowed them to return to the holy city of Jerusalem. And the book of Isaiah makes this much clear. This was God's desire that the Jews return home, and many did, but many did not. In fact, many Jews, including Esther's parents and her older cousin and and, and guardian, father figure, Mordecai, they moved even further away from Jerusalem, further east to the Persian capital of Susa, and this is where the story of Esther takes place. See, the Jews had started to uh, get a palate and grow accustomed for life in exile. Some of them started to, in fact, you would say, enjoy uh, wedding with with the pagans. And so this is where our story takes place. In chapter one of the book of Esther, we learn that Cyrus the Great, he's obviously passed on because his grandson, Ahasuerus, has taken the throne. Now, if you're a history buff, you'll know that Ahasuerus was his name used by the the Jews. It was his Persian name. But if you're, again, a history buff, you would know this man by the name of Xerxes, It's what the ancient Greek historians uh, called him. But we're going to stick this morning with the name Ahasuerus because that's what the text, in fact, uses. 
So anyways, the events of this book of Esther, they were all recorded around mid-4th century B.C., okay? So we're about 400 years, give or take, from Christ hitting the planet, not far. And it's at this time that Persia is the largest, most powerful, most affluent empire the world has ever seen. Persia stretches for thousands of miles Across diverse terrain, it boasted a military force that was rumored to to be in the millions. So large and so powerful was Persia, it was thought to be ruled by a god. Now, unfortunately, Ahasuerus thought this about himself too. He thought he was a god. And did not we see this vividly in chapter 1 when Ahasuerus according to chapter 1 verse 4 he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for 180 days you guys in other words he threw a 6 month party for himself that simultaneously doubled as a worship service to himself 6 months of what would have been all you can eat, food and booze and sex for his governing officials and military leaders. Now, historically speaking, we know the purpose of this party that took place in chapter one is that Ahasuerus was trying to drum up support for an upcoming war that he wanted to to make against the Greeks. This war would include the Battle of Thermopylae, Battle of 300. And what a better way to rally your generals What what a better way to get everybody on board for war than to remind them that you're a god. That was the point of this party. And then if if a six-month rave with your nobles isn't enough, he then opens the palace doors as we saw to every citizen living in in the Persian capital of Susa. Seven days of more eating and drinking and sleeping around. We saw in chapter one, verse eight, that the only rule at this party was that there were no rules. And I mentioned this in Worcester a couple weeks ago, but according to Jewish historians, these parties that could sometimes number up to 70,000 people, they were so depraved and so dark, it was said that the devil himself was in attendance. We saw later in chapter one that Ahasuerus got really drunk He tried to degrade his wife, Queen Vashti, in front of a palace full of drunk men, thousands of drunk men. When she rightly and boldly and bravely said no, he divorced her, he banished her, and some Jewish records claim that he impaled her on the gallows. And then between chapters one and two, several years go by, during which Ahasuerus loses the war to the Greeks the war that he was rallying for at the party, he loses. And so at the beginning of chapter two, we looked at last week, Ahasuerus had just been defeated by the Greeks. He was depressed, he was lonely, and then we saw the lengths that his royal attendants went to to cheer him up, to rally all of the virgins of the kingdom in order to try and find Ahasuerus, another queen, and that's when we were introduced to the very young and very beautiful Esther as well as her older cousin and and father figure, Mordecai. And what we need to understand about these two main characters, they were both Jews, but they were also so zealously committed 
to blending into the surrounding pagan culture. They had sworn off their Jewish identities. They had taken Persian names. They had adopted the Persian lifestyle. Given the fact that in chapter three, we learn that Mordecai is a, is a king's employee, he and Esther almost no doubt would have been present at the crazy party. We saw last week that Esther... She was not only chosen to join the king's harem of virgins, but after training and preparing herself for one whole year, she entered the king's bedroom at the time that was appointed for her, and she wowed the king so much that she was chosen to be queen. We saw last week as we ended Ahasuerus was in a great mood at this point. A feast was given to Esther. Gifts were given. There was a remission of taxes. Hallelujah. But you guys remember, Esther is a Jew. Esther is an Israelite. She is a supposed member of God's covenant people. I say it again. If we read the book of Esther rightly, there is a lot of more faithlessness than faith going on even in the main characters. This is why Martin Luther wanted this book struck from the canon of scripture. It's why many other theologians since have been very uncomfortable with this book. It's why many pastors haven't preached this book. I'm so glad that Pastor Ronnie decided to preach through this book because it's so important for you and I, if you're like me, to see that God sovereignly works even in the lives of compromised people. Because I don't know about you, I am sincerely compromised in my life. I don't often look like a Daniel, but I can relate with an Esther. And I'm so thankful for this book in scripture. Would you follow along as I read? We have a, a rather long passage. I'm gonna read it all. Uh, chapter two, verse 19 is where we will start and then we'll read through all of chapter three. I'll try to go at a, at a reasonable rate here. Esther chapter two, starting in 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. 
So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly, by order of the king, and a decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, there is a lot here, and it is all good. So Lord, this morning we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would speak clearly and concisely, that you would edify us this morning as only your word and your spirit can do. Use this word, Lord, to change us and to transform us into the likeness of your Son for your glory and our joy. Amen. Bear with me for a second after that long reading. Well, like I said, there, you know, there, there's a lot here. But what I think is here is a very helpful, practical, relevant word for every single one of us in this room. And so I ask that you lean in with me. And uh, let's walk through three points that I have. If you're a note taker, these are the three points that I'll operate under the rest of our time. We're gonna see this morning, number one, when obedience seems insignificant. Number two, when obedience costs us significantly. Number three, we're gonna see that God is faithful to use our imperfect obedience to accomplish his perfect purpose. 
And so let's just jump right in with point number one, when obedience seems insignificant. In verse 19 of chapter two, where we started, all of the virgins uh, from earlier in the chapter have, have each had their night with King Ahasuerus. They're gathered together uh, once more in the harem of the concubines where they will never leave. These women will never marry. Many of them will never see the king again unless, of course, he summons them by name. And that is the rest of their lives right there. Now, Esther, of course, as we learned last week, has been chosen queen. And throughout this whole prom, uh, process, she's managed to keep her Jewish identity a secret to everyone, including her husband, just as her older cousin and guardian Mordecai had asked of her. Now, Mordecai is clearly some sort of, a, of an employee of the king. In verses 19 and 21, as well as verse 3 of chapter 3, we see Haman mentioned at the king's gate day after day. And we need to understand that the king's gate was, was much more than a, a white picket fence surrounding the citadel. This was the city hub. At the king's gate was where all business was conducted and, and political policies were discussed. In fact, if you remember back to the book of Ruth, the king's gate would have been the location where Boaz secured the legal right to redeem Ruth and Naomi. So Mordecai just happens to be, are you seeing the air quotes? He just happens to be in the exact location at the king's gate at the exact right time. We have to see that this is a tongue-in-cheek way of this Hebrew author saying God is weaving and working here. There is no just happens to be. Hey, uh, Mordecai just happens to be at a place to overhear the assassination plot being discussed between two of the king's eunuchs. In verse 21, Big Then and Teresh, I have no idea if that's how you pronounce their names, but we're going to go with it. They were the guards who were stationed at the entrance of the harem's quarters. That is where all of the king's concubines were kept. Now in those days, if you were selected, if you were Big Then and Teresh and you were selected for this kind of service to the king, first of all, you didn't have a choice. Ahasuerus could go to any of the 127 provinces in Persia and handpick any man that he wanted to serve as a guard. In addition, if he stationed you anywhere near his women, you would have immediately been castrated. That's what it means to be a eunuch. And the reason you would have been immediately castrated was to prevent you from running off with any of the king's women. And you had no say in the matter. It put, puts a little bit of a light on why Big Ten and Teresh might be a little angry. <laughs> I would be. <laughs> and P.S., it is highly likely that Mordecai was a eunuch. We don't read once of any wife or children. He works at the king's gate that's very close to the harem. It's highly likely that Mordecai was a eunuch. So anyways, the focus of verses 19 through 23 is on Big Then and Teresh. They're scheming this assassination of the king. Mordecai overhears it. He sends word to Esther. Esther reports this urgent information to Ahasuerus. On behalf of Mordecai, 
We see that the issue is investigated. Big Dan and Teresh are discovered guilty and they are hanged on the gallows, which would have meant one of two things in Persia. They were either crucified or they were impaled on a stake. Now, thanks to Mordecai, the king's life is spared and the whole ordeal gets recorded in the king's official records, which is important for later in the story. But do you know what happens after that? Nothing. Nothing happens after this event gets recorded in the book of the King's Chronicles. In fact, after the events of 19, uh, verses 19 through 23, Esther would have been sent back to her quarters until Ahasuerus summoned her in for another night. And Mordecai, who did this very loyal thing, this very, if you will, obedient thing for King Ahasuerus by foiling the assassination plot against the greatest superpower of the world, Mordecai would have been sent back to his nine-to-five job at the king's gate without so much as a thank you. He would have been sent back to the same desk At night, Mordecai would have slept in the same bed. He probably struggled to pay the same bills. If he was a eunuch, he was still, of course, a eunuch. He was still separated from his daughter figure, Esther, and between chapters two and three. Now, several more years go by. Now, if you're Mordecai, talk about feeling a bit overlooked unnoticed. Talk about this act of being obedient to Yahweh, God, and even obedient to the king, seeming to be insignificant, right? I'd be willing to bet that every one of us in this room has felt this feeling. We know what this feels like. Many of you who have been Christians for a long time, you've followed God day after day, year after year. You've tried to faithfully serve the Lord. You've tried to obey him. You've tried to do what his word says, to worship him, to honor him, to reflect him. Maybe some of you in this room, like I did this week, can't help but feel a bit like Mordecai. You are caught in a season, maybe like me, where your obedience seems insignificant. Maybe you're in a season of wondering, as I often am, is there anything being gained by reading my Bible every day? Is there anything good coming from the agonizing moments of prayer that I fight for every day, is there really any benefit, really, to being immersed in this church community? It feels a bit like wax on, wax off in the Karate Kid, doesn't it? Why am I doing this, Mr. Miyagi? What about this? You ever ask this? Is anything happening when I refuse to look at pornography. In that moment, is anything happening? Or am I pointlessly fighting a losing battle? Is anything being accomplished when I refrain from gossiping? Is there any transaction that's being made? Is there anything that's happening in the unseen realm when I, when I refuse to gossip? Is anything affected when I turn off the inappropriate movie? Is anything happening when I say, you know what, no, I, I, had, a, I had a drink, I'm not gonna go any further? 
Is anything happening in these moments? Or does our obedience seem insignificant? I'm here to tell you as one of your pastors, yes, there are things happening. Your obedience is greatly significant. Every little act of obedience, greatly significant. Husbands, when you sacrifice for your wives in that moment when you would rather deride them, when you'd rather win the argument, win the battle. Wives, when you submit to your husbands, when you don't understand why fully this decision needs to be made, but you, you trust that God has given you a husband who is following him in those moments. Children, when you obey your parents, even when you're convinced that they are wrong, as I was all growing up, when you obey your parents, it is not insignificant. Jesus sees it. And he tells us in his word, listen, that such obedience in the moment by moment, I'm going to choose not to look at pornography. I'm going to choose not to have that extra drink. In that moment of obedience, you are storing up a glory by God's grace in the heavenlies that will make a Hazarus's palace look like a cardboard box. Be reminded of this today. Be reminded, brothers, that your fight against lust is not insignificant. Because of Christ, you can win. You can stand victorious. Sisters, be reminded that your fight against divisive speech is not insignificant. I'm not trying to be stereotypical. All of these sins apply to everyone. There's no male-female preference here with the gossip thing, okay? But just hear that. It is not insignificant to fight sin. In fact, it is evidence when we continue to fight, though it may seem insignificant, is it not evidence that the Spirit of God is finishing what he has started in us? We might be so inclined to think that Jesus' obedience in the wilderness was insignificant, right? He'd been fasting for 40 days. The devil simply says, turn those stones into, into some bread. Feed yourself. I mean, could any of us really have blamed Jesus? creating a loaf of bread. But that act of seemingly insignificant obedience played an insurmountable role in securing our redemption. It's why Paul writes in Galatians 6, brothers and sisters, don't grow weary of doing good. For in due season, can take this to the bank. We will reap if we do not give up. Do you know it takes five years for a Chinese bamboo tree to grow? And what I mean by that is from the point that it's in a pot, you water it every single day. You weed the pot every single day. You put little growth stuff in there, whatever, well, water, uh, every single day. And do you know you don't even see a sprout for five years, 
Talk about seemingly insignificant. And then within a 30-day process at that year five, it shoots up over three feet. You can almost see it grow. It's like a millimeter a minute. Because all of that continuous, seemingly insignificant work throughout the five years was growing something under the soil that you, in fact, could not see. But it was there. Let us not grow weary of doing good. So for those of you who are striving to live by God's word, those of you who are diligently cultivating your prayer life, you're serving your neighbors, if that's you, praise the Lord. Keep it up. Keep going. Because God is working even when your obedience seems insignificant. But what about point two? When obedience ends up costing us significantly because that is what we see in the entirety of chapter three. Verse one of chapter three says, after these things, again, several years later, several years of watering that bamboo tree after Mordecai foiled the assassination plot. King Ahasuerus promotes this really kind and gentle and uh, reasonably thinking man named Haman to be second in command over the entire Persian empire. Maybe think back to Genesis. This was what Joseph became to Pharaoh in the book of Genesis. So Haman, this dude, is given a throne, according to verse two, all of Persia, by instruction of the king, is to bow in his presence. Now remember this. I want want to say this really quickly. Remember, this is the Middle East. And even to this day, you are to bow in respect to dignitaries. I think that that's what's going on here. I don't believe that Ahasuerus' decree was that that everybody in Persia was to worship Haman. I don't believe that because Ahasuerus wanted everyone in Persia to worship him, right? He was requiring them, as it clearly says in verse 2, to pay homage to Haman, to show him respect. But in the second half of verse 2, what do we see? Mordecai, all of the sudden, out of left field, draws this line in the sand. Up until this point, Mordecai's been cool, with supporting a king who thinks he's God. Mordecai's been cool with going to the, to the raves in the palace, to the parties. He's been, he's been cool about lying about his Jewish identity. He's been cool rooting Esther on as she prepared as an unmarried girl for a whole year to go in and blow the king's mind. All of this, Mordecai, has been cool with. And then all of the sudden, He's asked to bow in respect to the right-hand man of Ahasuerus, and it was just too much to ask. He doesn't do it. I'm going to try and save some of my comments on that here for a moment. In verses 3 and 4, Mordecai's co-workers are like, dude, why are you throwing so much shade at Haman? Every day he rides by, you refuse to acknowledge him. Don't you know that the king has decreed that we recognize him? And it's right here in this transaction after 40 or 50 years of concealing his identity as a Jew 
After 40 or 50 years of making every effort to blend in with the Persians, even after taking the name of a pagan god, Mordech, in verse 4, Mordecai does what he has repeatedly forbidden Esther to do. He tells everyone at the king's gate that he's a Jew. He says, I can't bow. I'm a Jew. I cannot bow. I will not bow to Haman. I am a Jew. I'm going to save the bulk of this comment until the end. But what I mean when I'm talking about an imperfect obedience is, is what I think is going on right here with Mordecai. I think he might be a little bit misled. I think that he probably should have bowed if I understand the context correctly. Of course, if Haman were requiring this worshipful bow, of course Mordecai could not bow. I get that. But I don't think, knowing the culture, I don't think that was the case. I think Mordecai probably should have given this respectful bow. I think he was misled in his decision. Nevertheless, what we understand from the book of James is, man, when your conscience is seared about something, to do it would be to sin. And I believe that Mordecai, his, I believe his conscience as we see, was somehow in turmoil. I believe he was in turmoil about this. Now, who knows, right? We, don't, we have to read between some of the lines a little bit here. Maybe this was a turning point in, in Mordecai's life. Maybe it was an awakening. He, maybe he was beginning to realize how far he had drifted away from a life of being set apart to and with and for God. So whatever's going on in Mordecai's life, what happens his employee, his co-workers, they turn against him. Now, okay, another bit of context. This is, these, these, uh, these books are hard because we have to think like Persians. In Persia, Persia's a pluralistic society. Okay, so you, if you were a Persian at this time, you would be free to worship any God that you could possibly want. But the moment you start acting like your God is superior to everyone else or the only God, that's when you're in trouble. That sounds a lot like somewhere we live. Persia has room for everyone but bigots. Persia is tolerant toward everyone but the intolerant. And church, I believe that there's a day coming in America, not to get all doom and gloom, when we will experience what Mordecai experiences in verses four, five, and six. When Mordecai stands up to really demonstrate his spiritual convictions that no one, including Haman, is worthy of our allegiance like the holy creator God of the Bible. When the people at the king's gate see that Mordecai is getting real about his faith, they report him. And from verse 5 to the end of the chapter, we see Haman so filled with fury at Mordecai's defiance that he begins making plans, Haman begins making plans not to simply sit down and address Mordecai face to face like a reasonable leader would. He makes plans to eradicate Mordecai's entire race. Now, if you haven't taken this cue yet for the rest of the story, just know Haman is a grade A narcissistic psychopath masquerading as a capable leader. And unfortunately, our world is filled with these people. Which is why when we get to the Gospels and the New Testament, Jesus' bottom-up model of leadership is so refreshing. 
He came to serve, not to be served. He came to seek those who weren't seeking him. He came to die for those who would kill him. While James and John are talking about who's going to be the most powerful in the kingdom of God, what's Jesus doing? He's washing their feet. Jesus is not like other leaders. That was just a commercial. (laughs) In verse 7, Haman and his posse, they play this little game of lots. A a lot would be a dice, a die. (laughs) The Hebrew word for lots is pur. And that word is going to become significant later on in chapter 9. So put that in your pocket. We can't hang out on it long. But that word poor is going to become significant. With each roll of the poor representing a day of the month. So they had Haman and his dudes had a calendar out in front of them. And they were throwing lots to see which day the dark spirits would allow for the Jews to be eradicated. And their lot lands on day 13 of the 12th month, Adar. And then in verses 8 and 9, Haman pitches his plan to Ahasuerus. And here's basically what he says. He says, okay, Ahasuerus, there are people all throughout your empire who think that their God is the only God, even above you, dear king. This kind of uh, intolerance cannot be tolerated. So now I know because of the war, your treasury is pretty low So I want to foot the bill for their extermination. If you just say the word, say the word. So the king in verse 10 takes off his signet ring, which is basically an ancient power of attorney, hands it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, to do as he wished. And the last part of our passage, verses 12 through 15, the message goes out. And imagine this. Imagine living in the kingdom of Persia And having a herald come to your province, open the scroll and read that in 11 months time, on the 13th day of the 12th month, month, you and those around you in this province are to put to death every man and woman and child who is Jewish and you're to plunder all of their belongings. No wonder the city of Susa is just whipped into a confusion. And I would hope that if a message was ever decreed about the people of God in Ashland, I would hope that the Ashlanders around us who aren't followers of God would even say, what? These people are, are, they're, they're decent people, they're good people. And then Haman and Ahasuerus sit down for a celebratory drink. I'm going to try to begin my wrap-up process here. When I was in seventh grade, just to tie into this, this second point, when I was in seventh grade, my best friend and I cheated on a test uh, in our language arts class. We were both Christians, and so when the Holy Spirit began to do his work, uh, he and I, we were both convicted, and we wanted to do the right thing. We wanted to do the obedient thing, and so we went to our teacher, who was also a professed Christian, and we confessed to her. And in this instance, the teacher decided that the best thing to do would be to make my buddy and I stand in the front of the room while she warned the rest of the class that we were cheaters. And it was in that moment that my buddy and I really would have rathered that our obedience seem insignificant in that moment. But instead... 
our obedience and, you know, put yourself in seventh grade. At the time, that was costly. It's very costly. We didn't shed that image probably for the rest of the year. Now multiply that by a million times a million and we're starting to scratch the surface of how I bet Mordecai felt when Mordecai wasn't entirely sure but he decided to draw this line in the sand. He thought that's what the Lord was calling him to do. It was kind of a gray area to bow to Haman or not. He draws this line in the sand I mean, after all, he'd been obedient in the past and it was really insignificant. Just, it got recorded in a book and then nothing happened. So he does this and what? The entire Jewish population has a date with death. Can you imagine how he felt? Finally standing on his Jewish convictions, The entire race is scheduled for extermination in 11 months. Now, this level of cost is not something that all of us will face, but as Christians, it is something that all of us ought to be ready for. Because the same enemy of God's people in the book of Esther is our enemy today. Notice in our passage in chapter three, that twice the author stresses it's Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. And then in verse 10, he even adds the enemy of the Jews. Haman is a descendant of King Agag, king of the Amalekites, the first people to attack the Israelites in the book of Exodus. Thomas Schreiner in his biblical theology links Agag even back further to an enemy that we all share that was told in the garden in Genesis chapter three, there would be offspring of the woman, but there would be also offspring of the serpent. There's a link between the offspring of the serpent Satan coursing through history, through people like the Amalekites and all the way up through Haman and we ought not to deceive ourselves. Hamans are still among us today. Now to land this point a little bit more on the ground, give us something to tie our shoes with here. Maybe today you're suffering a relationship that you had to end because it wasn't honoring to the Lord. Maybe a dating relationship. Maybe people around you were giving you some wise counsel saying this this young man is not not the one for you. This young woman is not the one. And you, you, you tried to draw a line in the sand to be faithful to what the Lord was speaking to you and now you're dealing today, this morning, with the fallout of it. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've lost your job on account of following Christ. I know that's not very common just yet, but I do know a guy who lost his job as a Cadillac salesman because he refused to bend the truth about the cars he was selling. He lost his job because of it. Maybe if you're a student, maybe you experience daily ridicule in the cafeteria because you lead a Bible study during lunch. Look, sometimes in the moment, church obedience is costly, but God never tells us to fix our eyes on the momentary affliction, does he? And church, if Mordecai could only have read a few chapters ahead in the book of Esther like we are able, 
he would understand what my point is in, verse, in, in point three, that God is faithful to use even our imperfect, in-the-moment obedience to accomplish his perfect purpose. I've already described Mordecai's likely imperfect obedience. Sometimes, you guys, as believers trying to follow the Lord, there are gray areas, are there not? Do you bake the cake for the gay couple or do you not, right? Do you bake the cake for this young man's bar mitzvah which is celebrating his entry into a religion that doesn't honor Jesus? Think about the countless gray situations that we find ourselves in. It is our task, it is our endeavor as believers to be immersed in a community who knows the word, to also know the word ourselves, to submit ourselves to elders and leaders who love Jesus, who want to give right wisdom. It's our job to get all surrounded in that and then when the time comes, if it's not explicitly clear, we make the best decision we possibly can to honor the king who has saved us. And sometimes it seems insignificant and sometimes there is a high price But God never, ever fails to work for good. All of those trials that we face for those who are called according to his purpose. Maybe you are a pregnant teen and you're afraid to tell your parents. You're afraid of the shame. You're afraid of the risks. We believe that, that Christ would say, choose obedience to God. Deliver this baby. Cry out to God who is faithful and he will walk beside you. He will use even your imperfect obedience to accomplish his perfect will in your life. If your boss is acting illegally and you're afraid to confront him or her, you're, you're afraid of the fallout, brother or sister, choose obedience to God. Cry out to him, take a stand against injustice. He will be faithful to stand with you. If your child is walking in sin, but you're afraid of pushing them away, you're afraid of losing their trust, you almost want to endorse what they're doing, you almost want to affirm it, to validate it so that they stay close to you, don't honor Jesus. No, don't do that. Honor Jesus. Not don't honor Jesus, honor Jesus. <laughs> honor Jesus. He will stand with you. He will fight for you and with you. He will work even this according to his counsel for your good somehow. Look at Christ. His obedience to the Father cost him greatly. As he hung there naked and bleeding, having been crucified as payment for our sin, you guys, on that cross, Jesus saw something. He saw something. He saw a future glory when you and I and all of God's people would be reunited with the Father and Spirit, with him. He saw this. He saw that he would not only be reunited with the Father and Spirit, he saw that we would be with him and every other man and woman and child who calls out to him. He saw that on the cross, as he hung there, ashamed, naked, bleeding, dying, he 
saw what I pray we can get a glimpse of this morning. As he endured the excruciating punishment, the most excruciating the world has ever doled out, we learn from Hebrews 12 that he willingly endured what was coming on the cross for what was coming even further, the joy that was set before him. If we can only sink our confident trust into this, that what is coming for those who trust and obey God, even when it seems insignificant, even when it costs us a lot, you guys, our minds can't even fathom what is coming. And thank God that at the end of the day, it's not my obedience nor yours that earns our ticket into God's kingdom. It's Jesus's better obedience that he lived on our behalf. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, how we praise you that you are not in heaven with a grade card looking down at every time I did not draw the appropriate line in the sand and you're not doing that with my brothers and sisters before me. Instead, what you're doing is you are seeing the completed work and obedience of Christ made in full And you have accredited that to our account. And you now say, despite what your past has looked like, come and receive forgiveness and go and sin no more. That is the God that we worship. And we praise you for it. We thank you for this good news. Lord, charge us that even when our obedience might seem insignificant, it is not. So charge us to wake up tomorrow, to get into the word, to be warriors of prayer, to be immersed in Christian community. Our obedience is never insignificant. And Lord, charge us that even when our obedience costs us significantly, the cost is well worth the reward. In Jesus' name, amen.